Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Yes, I do moonlight as a quick change artist. I don't, I should. Little, little side hustle is not bad, right? Good to be with you today. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're just going to dive right into our passage this morning. Um, today we are dealing with the tough topic. We're just going to get it out of the way now, okay? Uh, we are going to be dealing with divorce. And that has a lot of thoughts, that has a lot of emotions, that has a lot of difficulty. And we just want to acknowledge that this is where we're at. This is also the next passage up. And we're a Bible church, so we just preach the Bible. We're not going to be afraid of it. We're just going to deal with it and trust that as God moves by his spirit, that we can trust him to do the work that needs to be done. Amen? All right, so why is this hard? Well, over the last six weeks, I have spent probably somewhere in the 90-hour mark preparing for today's message because this is a topic that it's just it's too important to get wrong. It's, too, it's got too many issues, it has too many stories, has too much pain. And so I, I've got a whole bunch of resources together that I think will be helpful for you. There's four books that I would highly recommend if you've got your phone and you're like a QR code person, just snap the picture, uh, bring up the QR code. And these are some really great resources that I found very helpful in understanding it and, and kind of diving a little deeper into these areas. Uh, as well as two really, really helpful videos. Maybe you're not like, I'm not reading a 600-page book, Pastor Corey. It's like, yeah, I don't blame you. That's fine. Uh, but there are some really excellent resources online as well. Uh, Southern Seminary, they do a series of videos around difficult topics, cultural topics, and they're very helpful this way. And then Mike Winger, who's a, uh, an online apologist, he's a pastor author, uh, he did a three-hour in-depth Bible study on this issue that I found very, very helpful. And uh, I would encourage you to do the same. So, I want to lay some ground rules before we get into this. Can we just acknowledge that this is going to be tough? Can we understand that divorce is always painful, it's always difficult, <clears throat> it's always complicated, that there's, there's never like a cut and dry reality to some of these things? Uh, and I'm also going to acknowledge that I can't at any length of time deal with the difficulties of divorce. I've got 35 minutes on a Sunday morning, and this is hard. It's difficult for people to wrap their minds around and try and figure out how do I do this. And because there are people involved, it's not a, it can't just be seen as a black and white reality. I'm going to be taking a very high level view of the scriptures and biblical principles about marriage, divorce, remarriage, because I can't get into the weeds of every detail in every situation. There's no way that I can do that. I know for some of you, this is your story whether this is present now or you grew up in a home with divorced parents or there's some issue around your family with somebody who has had a divorce, I'm not looking to shame you. I'm not looking to chastise you. I'm not looking to put any burden or weight on you. I am, however, committed to preaching God's word faithfully. So if God convicts you rightly by his spirit, I would trust that you would get wise counsel, pastoral help, and where needed, repent and find restoration. If your marriage is struggling, please invite your pastors, myself, Pastor Neil and Pastor Kevin, and our elders and their wives in to help you. We believe you, we, we want to believe you, we want to be in this with you. If you've got an issue in your marriage that you're struggling with, you don't know what to do, please allow us to help you. And we can help direct you to the right professionals to walk with you in, in areas where clinical help is necessary and needed. I want to say this, counseling is not a sign of weakness, it is an opportunity for strength. And so if you're thinking like, oh, I can't, I can't get counseling, somebody's going to know, we need to know so that we can help you. And then lastly, and most importantly, where the Bible is clear, we must accept 
and submit ourselves to the clear teaching and commands of the scriptures in obedience. Where the Bible is unclear, like some of the areas in reference to this, we need to be gracious and submit ourselves to our local pastors and local elders who are in spiritual authority over us. So here's the title for this week's message, Divorce and Its Difficulty. Because that's where we're at. This is what we're dealing with. I know it's heavy. I'm not going to try and make it light. But this is where we are. So would you stand as we read the scripture together this morning? Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And then we will dive in. Jesus then left that place and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was Jesus' custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and they tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce to his wife and send her away. Jesus' response was, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. He replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but now they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered them, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So while we're going to be dealing with divorce as it is rightly regulated in the Bible, today's big idea for the message actually doesn't have anything to do with divorce because I think this is symptomatic of a bigger reality. The big idea today is that Jesus holds a high view of the scriptures, and so should we. What the scriptures say, we need to be willing to submit ourselves to in fullness because when God is clear in speaking to us, what he gives us is for our good and for our flourishing. So let's get into the text. It says, Jesus left that place, that place being all the events of chapter 9, verses 30 through 50 that Pastor Neil walked us through last week, where he had those interactions. And he went into a region of Judea, now closer to Jerusalem, across the Jordan. And again, crowds of people, as had been happening over the last number of weeks, months, maybe years of Jesus' ministry, they came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. This is what Jesus does kind of now from Mark's gospel in the middle half going forward. He does this more and more. He engages in teaching with people about kingdom principles and kingdom ministry. Some Pharisees, though, came and they tested him. Now, this word tested is actually a word trapped, or they looked to trap him. And they tried to do so by asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they're coming to him and they bring up this issue of divorce, which is interesting because you think if people wanted to trap Jesus, there'd be a a whole slew of different things that they could ask him about, right? They could ask him like, how come you, oh, you're so kind. Thanks, Neil. I'd actually prefer a lukewarm one if you could. I'm just kidding. Why would the Pharisees bring up this issue? Well, there's a couple really important reasons why. First is that in the Jewish system, in their Pharisaical system, in their kind of adjudication system, there were two groups or two schools of thought. One was the school of Shammai, and one was the school of Hillel. Now, Shammai was the more conservative of the schools of thinking, and Hillel was more the liberal side of the school of thinking. And they got themselves kind of twisted in a knot around the issues of the law where the Bible was maybe somewhat unclear, and they would take verses or they would take words that that could be translated one way, and then you'd have a very different opinion on one side and then a very different opinion on the other. Does it make sense? We don't have any of those things today, do we? (laughs) But it's important to know it's something to get off the issue here. 
Neither of these guys were advocates of divorce, but they had very different ways of approaching the issue. And because there's a very few number of verses in the Old Testament that talked about this, it makes sense as to why this was a contentious issue. Now, their issue was not to ask Jesus for his correct information. Remember, this is what the issue is. They are trying to trap the guy, trying to put him in a position where he's going to get stuck. And so if you remember a few, maybe months back, Pastor Neil walked us through the, the soap opera of the middle of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter six, where Herod the Tetrarch throws this party for himself. He gets his new wife, who was his sister-in-law, which was unlawful, and uh, her daughter, which becomes his stepdaughter, and says, please dance for us. And she dances provocatively and erotically, and that's what the Bible says. And they were so pleased that he decides, I will give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. And so she goes back to mom, and because mom and dad are, and mom and stepdad are kind of in this little thing, and I'm going to explain why, uh, she says, I want John the Baptist's head. Now, why would she want that? Well, because Herod, as the, as the national leader of Israel, had done something unlawful. He had divorced his wife and married his sister-in-law, which is clearly spoken about in Leviticus, that this is not something that you're supposed to do. And so John the Baptist, being the prophet who wants to call people to repentance, says, what you're doing is unlawful, what you're doing is not right, and you need to stop. She didn't like that so much. And so when this opportunity came up, she's like, oh, now I can get rid of John. You kind of have to wonder, is this what these guys were trying to do as well? Putting Jesus in this trap, because if Jesus sided with Hillel, then we could cast him off. He's a liberal. We don't need to listen to him anymore. Everything that he teaches is up for question. If he agrees with Shammai, then Herod's doing something wrong. He's done something unlawful, and we should call him out. And they're, they're trying to hope, like, oh, maybe we could get rid of Jesus the same way that they got rid of John. You can see what they're trying to do here with a little bit more context, right? So the hope of these religious leaders is that if they can get Jesus to side with one another of the two schools of thought, they've got him. They've put him in a position where he can't win. Well, Jesus, being amazing, says, yeah, your game isn't going to work. He says, what did Moses command you? Notice how he completely circumvents Shammai and Hillel. He says, I'm not interested in your schools of thought around this issue. I want to know what God has already said. And so Moses, he says, what does Moses say? And they responded to him, Moses permitted, this is going to be significant in the rest of our study, a man to write a certificate of divorce to his wife and to send her away. So Jesus masterfully puts them back on their own heels, not about his particular opinion on the issue, but he says, what you're trying to do is not going to work. And here's why I'm going to show you it's not going to work. What did Moses say? You guys are big about the Hillel and the Shammai situation, how they're conflicting. I'm more concerned about what the law actually speaks about. So from a biblical perspective, what Jesus is basically saying in this text is, you tell me what the Bible already says. Let's, let's not have a discussion on what our interpretation is. Let's be clear about what scripture actually says altogether. And now when I said permitted is going to be important to our text, divorce was already happening before the law was given. Okay, so it's not like God is like, oh, well, now I have to give you a reason for divorce. No, no, no. He's, God graciously regulated divorce in the Old Testament law so that people, in particular women, were not cast outside of society. At that time in history, women were seen more as property than they were as people, which was wrong and completely inappropriate. And so God regulates the issues of divorce around the law and helps them understand that if you're going to do this, you need to make this legal and final. You can't just hold this wife hostage because you want to keep her bound. 
And that's also going to be an important part of the text as we move forward. See, this is the area that they were disagreeing about. It's Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 and 2. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, everybody hold your breath, I'm going to explain it. And because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her and sends her from his house. This is the issue of where Shammai and Hillel were arguing. One of them would take displeasing, Hillel would say, well, she burnt my toast on Saturday. So she's displeased me, which I think we can all agree is a little bit ridiculous. Shammai, however, took the word indecent as the most important word to interpret because indecent literally means nakedness. It's the idea that there has been something sexually shameful done that she has been part of. Now, it's not necessarily adultery because the law for adultery in the Old Testament was death by stoning. So there's something about this nakedness, this shamefulness about her that he, his responsibility, should he want to divorce his wife, is to send her from his house and give her a legal certificate saying that she is no longer bound to that marriage. She is now free to marry someone else. So the issue being discussed here between the conservatives and the liberal views is, is entirely around this thing. And so Jesus takes them back to it and then he does something masterful. He goes back further. Jesus says, it was because your hardness of heart that Moses wrote you this law. So here's the condition of human hearts. Your hearts were hard. That's why. Because that's not the ideal. The ideal for God's design of marriage is actually not for divorce. It's actually never for divorce. And yet God graciously regulates this thing in order to protect each other. But Jesus says, your hearts. Now he doesn't say their hearts. In the past, he makes a present tense statement says your hearts are continually hard in the same way that theirs were when they received the law. So don't put this off on it's a them problem, it's an us problem too. Then Jesus continues. He says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now notice the quotations here. Jesus is quoting something. He's actually going all the way back to Genesis. He goes to Genesis 1:27 and he says, this is God's design. This is what marriage is about. It's between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And then he quotes another passage in verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and become one flesh. The two, the, they are no longer two, but they are now one. And this is Genesis 2, 24. Why would Jesus take them there? Well, the law was given after the fall, after sin had entered the world, and after human hearts were already hard and bent against God. But in this passage, what we get is Jesus taking us to God's design, his ideal, before sin had entered the world and before we had this hardness of heart issue. So he's saying the the ideal for marriage, the ideal for Christian marriage in particular, is specified that we are to marry, we are to mirror Christ and his marriage to the church, and this is the way that we are supposed to do that. Leave, and the biblical word that we need to use is cleave. United is a really bad translation because cleave is the idea of welding. You are inseparably bonded. And that's how marriage is supposed to be viewed. Then Jesus continues, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why does he say no man separate? Because this is God's design. When God gives a design, he's the the one who gets to write the rules and the regulations around it. We don't get to come up with our own versions and think, well, God, you, you, you've kind of made a mistake here. We know better than you now. Like, we've been reading this Bible thing for 2,000 years, and the farther we get away from it, it seems like we, the farther we want to get away from a, a, a consistent and, uh, and radically true understanding of what it says. Well, Jesus isn't going to be about that, so he lays out for the Pharisees who are putting this issue on him this text, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. 
that this is the ideal. And because it takes place before sin enters the world, Jesus is saying, what you need to understand is that God's design is better for you than your own views on how to handle it. That's probably a message for all of us today. But leaning in further in verse 1010, it says, while they were back in the house again, wherever house Jesus and his disciples were staying at, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he gave them this. Jesus answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. So significant. This is a big issue. And look what he does. If she divorces her husband and marries another man, she also commits adultery. Well, why is that significant? What was the, who was the law for in Deuteronomy 24? It was just for the men to write a certificate of divorce and give it to their wives that they were displeased with, the burnt toast thing, or whatever. But what Jesus does here, he's, he actually elevates women and says, no, 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 guys, you can't just get away with doing whatever you want. If a woman, commits, if, if a woman has a divorce as well, there, there's the same kind of things going on. He's actually elevating the position of women in a negative context, but showing that every human heart is at the same spot that all of our hearts fall into this same issue of being hardened against what God actually wants and has for us in his good design for our best. And so Jesus in this, I think he's, he's expressing not only a high view of marriage, but a high view of the scriptures and also a very high view of divorce. If you divorce your wife, the reason that Hillel teaches is for whatever reason you want, you commit adultery. That's what he's saying here. If you take the liberal approach, you divorce, you, you divorce your spouse for whatever reason that you so choose, you're committing adultery. And the same issue is true whether you're a man or a woman. Now, that's all we get. That's the whole teaching in Mark's gospel about this issue. Anybody feel like this would be a tough pill to swallow if you're the disciples at that moment? Probably, right? So what's important as we take a high view of scripture is to understand that there are actually other places in the New Testament that talk about this issue. See, if we were just to focus on this one spot, then we could very easily argue from the scriptures that there's no divorce, it's final. Divorce is always unacceptable. Divorce is always wrong. Divorce is always sin. And we could just move on and, and kind of wipe our hands from it. Not literally, because these would be very, very difficult situations for everybody to live in. But Matthew records Jesus saying this in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. It has been said, Jesus says, so by your teacher, Shammai Hillel, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But Jesus says to you that anyone who divorces his wife, and then he gives an exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness. The word can translate to adultery. The word is actually more significant than that. It's the idea of any sexual uh, mischievance outside of the bonds of marriage. It's the word porneia, which we get the word pornography from. I'm not going to make a connection there. That's an issue for a different time. And he causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So this is additional teaching to what Jesus has already said in Mark's gospel. He gives a little bit more, uh, a little bit more value and he offers this one exception. That if marital unfaithfulness takes place, then a divorce is legitimate. See, this concession of Jesus can also be found in Matthew 19.9. So we're like, well, maybe Matthew is wrong and he's just kind of giving this other view. No, Matthew recorded this twice, and he's trying to help us understand something significant. He says to you, in this same idea, where Matthew records this interaction that Mark has had that we were reading today, that whoever divorces his wife, except on the basis of sexual immorality, a different word used here, which is interesting, and marries another, he commits adultery. So there's, a, there's that one concession of sexual infidelity or sexual immorality that Jesus gives as a stated reason for a legitimate biblical divorce. 
Now, the Apostle Paul also wrote an extensive chapter inside of the New Testament about this issue. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you're going to find uh, that, that Paul talks about being unmarried, staying single. He talks about uh, if you're widowed, what you should do. If you're in a marriage with somebody who's a believer and somebody who's not a believer, all these kinds of things. And he, he, he references the teachings of Jesus, but he takes it a little bit even further. He goes, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. So this is God's design. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not separate from his wife. But this part in the parentheses is what's interesting. He says, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And when Paul uses this phrase, and the husband so should not divorce his wife, it's, it's retroactively saying, and this previous statement is also true for the men. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me? It's a little bit complicated. Then he says, 1 Corinthians 7, 12, 13, and 15, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now this has been an issue for people over the history of the church. Is Paul saying that this one statement that he's making right now isn't the scriptures? That this one statement is not inspired by the Holy Spirit? No. He's saying because of how things are in our current situation, as the church is being built, as these things are happening, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So he's talking about an unequally yoked marriage. Somebody who has come to faith in Jesus in their marriage, one person's a believer, one person's not. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, it's the same thing. You, you see the track there, right? And then in verse 15, this is where all of the conversations around divorce happen. But if the unbeliever leaves, uh, let him do so. A believing spouse is not bound in such cases because God has called us to peace. This is everything that we have in the New Testament about the issue of divorce. That's it. Mark, uh, Luke makes a very similar comment to Jesus' very quick, pithy statement in Matthew chapter 19. So the only two permissible reasons that the Bible states as legitimate options for a divorce is sexual infidelity, sexual immorality, and how that all gets played together, and, as Paul says, desertion of a non-believing spouse. That's what the scriptures teach about. Now what's hard is, all of us know that divorces have happened that don't fit into those categories, right? See, in the early 1900s, between 1910 and 1940, this no-fault divorce thing came into play. Where you could basically do like Hillel was suggesting, and I'm unhappy with my spouse, so I want a new one. So I'm going to divorce this person because I have the national or legal right as a Canadian citizen or a, a citizen of some kind of first world country to do what it is that I want to do. That's not what the Bible teaches. Remember how I said at the beginning, we're Bible people and that we, like Jesus, need to hold a high view of scripture? This is where it gets tough. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. But I'm also going to hopefully be gracious and help you understand why I believe that God has designed this this way. So you don't have any blanks in your notes uh, to fill in. You just have a whole blank section because everybody is going to respond to these things differently. My hope is that as we go through what I believe are the biblical principles surrounding this issue, that you would not only find God's gracious hand for you, or somebody in your family, if you've had to walk through this difficulty, or if you have had this in your, in your story from your parents, Divorce is not fun. It's not easy. It puts us in a position where there's no winner. And that's not how God intends for us to live. But because God is gracious and because our hearts are hard, he makes these concessions in order to protect us, mostly from ourselves. So here's what I believe are very narrowed down. There are more of them, but I don't have enough time. 
the biblical principles around marriage, remarriage, divorce, and I'm also going to argue about singleness. First is that marriage is God's good and perfect general design for humanity. I get that from Genesis 1:27 that in the beginning God made them male and female for each other, complementary opposite. And then in Genesis 2, chapter 24, that, we are, that a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become inseparably bonded, cleave, welded together for the benefit of one another. But I also said that it's a general design. It's a general design because not everybody's going to be married. We have lots of wonderful people in our church who are single and have been their whole lives, who desire to be married and who are not. So to say that marriage is, the, is God's design for every human being is inappropriate and actually causes a whole bunch of hurt and a whole bunch of damage. Because from a character perspective, as we're going to get into it, there are some really good examples of single people in the scriptures that we can follow. I also, and it's, it's God's good and perfect design because marriage is God's good design for human sexuality, for procreation, and if you do a study on this, the basis for every society on the planet. Marriage is the foremost first institution on which every society is built. Marriage is also covenantal. In the same way that God covenants to his people to love and be faithful to them, we as people, when we get married, are supposed to be lovingly, faithfully covenanting to our spouse, to cleave to our spouses. And marriage is not just a sexual union where two people become the one flesh. That's the, that's the biblical view of the one flesh idea. But it's also a companionship union in which each party forsakes all others, is exclusive to that one individual, and gives themselves fully to their spouse for companionship and for very unique friendship. Second principle is this, you gotta protect your marriage at every cost. And you gotta protect the marriages of other people. Now, I'm not one of these people who says that a married man or a married woman cannot have friends of the opposite, of the opposite sex. I think that is very abusive, it can be, and I think that it needs to be treated with significant caution. Here's the reason why. We are brothers and sisters in the faith. That does mean that we have to control ourselves. It does mean that we have to be cautious and we need to make sure that we put stop gaps in place to protect ourselves from areas where we could go off and get, could get askew. But to protect our marriage and the marriage of others at all costs is one of these biblical principles. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. And sometimes it gets broken because of the sin of one or both parties. Here's some things that I want you to think about. And the, these are things, I wasn't going to say this, I'll say this now. I spent most of yesterday morning rewriting parts of the sermon because I knew that it was going to hit people in tough ways. I want to be gracious. I want to be kind. I want to be practical. But more than any of those things, I want to be faithful. Here are some really important things that I think that all of us need to be reminded of and I need to be reminded of in some of these areas I'm really struggling with myself and my wife and I struggle with. One, in protecting your marriage, build a lifelong covenant of friendship. Be your spouse's best friend. If you're not, work really, really hard to do so, if you can. Make sure that the other marriages in your circle are healthy because you do life together. Marriage is a solitary, exclusive union between two people, but it's not a public, it's not a private thing. It's a very public thing. We stand before family and friends when we get married and we honor God and what he's brought together. And so we, as soon as we get married, we just kind of be like, well, you guys are on your own now. That's not the way it should be done. And it's definitely not the way that it should happen in the church. 
So here are some things that you can do. One, the hardest one, let's just get out of the way, learn to communicate. Oh, if we could just figure out ways to think the same way between men and women, most of these issues would probably be a little bit more sidelined, right? Second, date your spouse. Full stop, date them. Play, pray, be affectionate, laugh. And I said this, and I'm going to say them differently than I have them written down. Be involved in spiritual disciplines apart so that you can be in spiritual disciplines together. This is an area that Caitlin and I really struggle with. I'm a pastor. Sometimes she feels like, I don't know if I'm going to say the wrong thing. Like, I have the, I'm intimidating to some people for whatever reason. I know why, but I don't like to think about why. But if we can do that, we often, we can, we actually side ourselves and saddle ourselves in a position which is better because we're putting safeguards in place to protect ourselves from ourselves. And it's very, very, very important. Here's the next one. Singleness is not only good, it can be preferred. Paul actually argues this all of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, if you're unmarried, stay that way because for this reason, you are set apart. You get to have special focus on serving God in his kingdom. People who are married, they don't have that same special focus because as Paul says, you have to worry about the needs of your spouse. And he uses the word worry on purpose because it brings about a bunch of worries that we all have to deal with who are married. But let me say this. I think that we need to kill the narrative that there's something wrong with people who are single in our churches. It's not okay. I remember hearing from, uh, from my wife, somebody that we're very close to, who somebody said, yeah, well, I know why that girl's single. It's because she's in sin. I went, hold on, what, what was that exactly? How do you know? We have to be very, very careful about walking alongside of this. Caitlin and I, my wife and I, have very, very close friends who are single, who desire to be married. And for whatever reason, God has not given them that gift yet. But in no way should their lives be seen as less than, and in no way should their lives be seen as mistaken. Single Christians deserve the same long-lasting, deep Christian community and friendship as married people do. It just has to look a little bit different. And if we're not willing to do that work, I don't think that we're willing to do marriage right either. So let's be gracious and cautious and walk with generosity because there are two perfect examples of singleness in the Bible. Want to guess the first one? There we go. Jesus. Was he less than human? Oh, to suggest that people have to be married in order to experience all of human experience is wrong. Because if Jesus didn't experience marriage, he's somehow less than human. If he's less than human, he can't pay for human sin. There's a problem. What about the Apostle Paul? Never married, super focused on God's kingdom, right? Like, I'm going to get beaten, I'm going to get flogged, I'm going to be in prison, I'm going to be shipwrecked, I'm going to be martyred. And he doesn't have the same concerns of looking after a spouse. So when it comes to these things, we need to be very aware that singleness is not only good because we can be filled in, fulfilled in all the same ways, barring one, sexual union. And can I please say this to us? Sex is not the pinnacle of human experience. It is a good gift that God gives married people to show us how we are uniquely welded together in the bond of marriage, but it is not the pre-ultimate thing that we are supposed to be focusing our lives on. That's where our culture has gone wrong. These are some of the tough ones. God hates divorce, 
That's what Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says. But God does not hate all divorces. Let me be very, very clear about that. God hates divorce, but he does not hate all divorces. And here's the reason I know that to be true. God divorced Israel at one point. You know that? If you read Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 3, it says that God saw that for all the adulteries of her faithless one Israel, that God had sent her away with a certificate of divorce. And this is during the time where uh, Israel and Judah were split, the northern, and, uh, northern kingdom and Judah were split. And he says, and, her sit, and, and uh, Israel's treacherous sister Judah did not fear, and she went to and played off the harlot. Oh, that's big language. God views this as significant. Faithfulness to God and his commands is seen as a marriage covenant in the Old Testament, and it's absolutely seen as a marriage covenant in the New Testament between Christ and his church. But God also does say that he hates divorce. And he hates divorce because of how divorces happen. Because some sin thing has had to take root and had to take place in a human heart who is bent against God by natural circumstances. Our hearts are hard and against God and his good design. And what ends up happening is that we start to look at this area of divorce as less than when we need to see it as more than. Yes, God hates it, but he doesn't hate all divorces because sometimes you need to get out. Because sometimes it's not right. Sometimes there's abuse. Sometimes there's been infidelity. And we have to stop telling people who've experienced these things that you have to stay in a bad marriage. Now we have to be very, very cautious not to make excuses where excuses need not be made. See, not also divorces are sinful is this idea that that God has permitted and regulated divorce because our hearts were hard, but it is also not the design. So that's why it hurts us. But let me also say this, for those who take the view of you need to forgive and get over it when something biblically legitimate has happened to end uh, end a marriage, forgiveness towards somebody who has hurt you is not the same as reconciliation and they need to be seen as different. You don't have to reconcile with somebody in that regard because God has permitted divorce for these reasons. Forgiveness, yes. Because in the Lord's Prayer, we are to forgive our debtors as we ourselves have been forgiven. There is no command to get a divorce in Scripture. There are only these regulations, these permissible areas so that we can understand what we ought to and ought not to do. And I can't stress this enough. Divorce never needs to happen, but it may where it needs to. Not all divorces are legitimate. Full stop, they're not. Outside of the biblical parameters that Jesus, Paul, has given us and Moses in the Old Testament, the areas of this no-fault divorce have got to go away in the church. We have to do better. We have to do better. Uh, In 2005, there was a really interesting study done by the North American Marriage Society, and this is what they found. This is kind of like a check all the boxes that apply. 73% said uh, the issue of divorce happened because of a lack of commitment by their partner. 56% said it was an argumentative relationship. 55% cited infidelity. 46% cited marrying too young. 45% said unrealistic expectations or general incompatibilities. 44% lack of equality in the marriage. And 41% said lack of preparation, no premarital counseling, and no couple's help. And 29% cited abuse. What's important to understand is that, biblically speaking, only two of these reasons are biblical grounds for divorce. The rest of them are, please get help and let us walk with you so you can enjoy the fullness and fruitfulness of your marriage. Remarriage is appropriate and acceptable. 
after a biblically legitimate divorce has been finalized. Now, this is difficult, and in no way can I deal with every situation. I'm not even going to try. But those who have been in broken marriages and broken marriage covenants, if somebody has broken your marriage covenant and you are now free from the marriage, then you are also free to remarry. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, we are called to be in peace. If you're no longer bound, that means you are free. You don't have to stay bound to an unhealthy relationship. But let me say this at the forefront. Should you have a biblical reason for divorce, yes, you can legitimately file for it. In areas of abuse, I think you should file quickly. That's my opinion. This is not the Lord. In areas of sexual infidelity, I think you've got to be really, really cautious. And you can file immediately should you need to. Everything else, we walk with you in the pain and the difficulty, the mud and the hurt of all of it. And last, divorce is biblically legitimate option in cases of abuse. And, here, and here's where I'm going to argue that from. We noticed in the scriptures, if you're paying attention, that there is no stated abuse clause in the New Testament, right? What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, it's the only time that the phrase is ever used. It's this phrase, in such cases. The word is plural. He's talking about one issue. He's talking about the issue of an unbelieving spouse leaving a believing spouse. But he says, cases. And because it's the only time used in the, in the New Testament, we have to, I had to do a little bit more digging. This phrase actually comes up a lot in Greco-Roman literature in the first century time. And it never once refers to a one-time cases being plural. It's always a multiplicity of cases. But let me argue this. Divorce is a biblically legitimate option in cases for abuse because sexual abuse is sexual infidelity, full stop. Emotional abuse is abuse of an image bearer of God and it's a breaking of covenanting vows of love, faithfulness, honor, and charity. Mental and psychological abuse is unacceptable in every and any relationship, so why should we allow it in our homes? Physical abuse is never acceptable. See, Paul makes that interesting point and he says, this is what it is and if your unbelieving spouse walks away or even worse, I think we can take it and say, if your believing spouse has treated you as an unbeliever would treat you in your marriage, they have been, uh, they've been called to task by their pastors, they've had conversations with people in spiritual authority over them, they continue to reject that authority, then what Paul says in other areas of life is we treat them like an unbeliever. If you're going to act like an unbeliever and claim to be a believer and be, not be repentant and not move forward, then we have to treat you like an unbeliever. That's what the Bible commands. High view of scripture, right? And so what we're given here is, I think, in the in such cases, we can easily make an argument for this from the Bible to suggest that when we get this phrase of in such cases, you are no longer bound. It's if the believing partner who has done wrong, who has been offensive, who is, is the guilty party, continues not to be repentant, not to reconcile, not to do the hard work, then in this circumstance, they are living like an unbeliever and they've abandoned their marriage covenant. Now, the weeds of that are so thick that it's really difficult to narrow it down. But while Jesus doesn't mention any of these things in the arguments that he makes in Matthew chapter 5 or Matthew chapter 19 or Mark chapter 10, I think because of the fact that Jesus regularly foregoes the letter of the law to protect human life, that we can make the same argument. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, which was unlawful. And he said, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath because it's against the law? 
Well, no, because what? He's God, he wrote the law, he knows what he's saying. But two, because he's more concerned about human life than he is about our keeping the letter of the law, which is generally speaking, trying to keep other people in the letter of the law, right? See, this issue of abuse and marriage, we need to be, they need to be handled with the utmost respect, care, dignity. It needs to include, include pastoral help and elders' help from your local church. It needs to include law enforcement, and it needs to include psychotherapeutic help every single time. Jesus holds a high view of the scriptures. I hope, if anything, that that is clear to you. That when we as Christians say that we are going to follow God, when the Bible isn't necessarily exactly clear, we are willing to do the hard work and offer grace to people who are struggling with the things that we're just studying. We need to understand that when the Bible teaches a difficult topic such as this, we need the whole counsel of God. For if we were to just read Mark's gospel, then the argument's pretty well set, right? But because there are more things listed for us to understand, what God has given us is the counsel of his whole word for us to understand and interpret these difficult, difficult things. If we just had Mark's gospel, there's no concessions. And I think that God would be putting people in abusive situations in harm's way. And God's not about doing that. And neither is his son. And neither should his church be. See, Jesus responds to the Pharisees with the scriptures, and in every difficult scenario we find ourselves in as Christians, as people, in relationships, in marriage, anything really, we, what we must be willing to do is hold a high view of scripture and say, I'm going to allow this to set the trajectory of how I'm going to live. Not my opinion, not my feelings, not what's been done to me or what is being done or what I've done, but to look at what God has said, do the hard work, and to understand that what he says to me is for my good. What he says to me is for my flourishing. We need to let the Bible alone be our authority on all things life, godliness, and faith. If we're not willing to do that, we have no right to speak to any of these issues. And it's certainly we need to take this Bible as our final authority in all areas of relationships, of reconciliation, of repentance, of restoration, of renewal. It's tough, right? But could we commit ourselves to being gracious, <laughs> to understanding that our brothers and sisters don't need our condemnation, they need our help? And when they continue to act like an unbeliever, then we have a basis to treat them like one if that's what they choose to want. Jesus holds a high view of the scriptures. That's why we are a Bible preaching church. We don't care about our opinions. We care what God has said. Amen. And that's who we're gonna be. So let's together hold a high view of scriptures. Can we do that? As difficult as it's gonna be to walk through the weeds, we can do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are incapable of understanding all the complexities and difficulties around these issues. I'm not capable, I'm not even close. And God, with your wisdom, with your counsel, with the comfort that comes from Holy Spirit in this moment, I would ask that for our brothers and sisters who have gone through this, who are going through this, who are wondering whether or not they need to go through this issue of divorce, that you would give them supernatural wisdom 
that it would be your word that is their guide. And for us who are walking alongside, who know of stories that are still in secret, that know of difficulties in areas where these things are just so complicated, that we would be willing to be like Jesus, understanding what God's word has said, understanding the ideal, calling people back to that again and again and again, but offering truth and grace and not holding other people to the letter of the law where we are not willing to hold ourselves to it. We want to worship you, Jesus. One of the best ways that we can do that is in obedience to your word. What you have said is for our good and for our flourishing. And so we worship you because you have given us what we need for life and godliness. Weld that reality to our hearts today, Lord Jesus, I pray for your sake. Amen. Amen. It's tough stuff. Thank you for being so gracious and listening. And if you need to talk, if you need somebody to talk with, please, please come and see myself, Pastor Neil, Pastor Kevin, our elders and their wives, and we will walk with you.